I am so grateful for the opportunity to speak for the next few minutes with the author of a truly fascinating book called Leonardo's Legacy, How Da Vinci Reimagined the World. We, of course, are talking about the extraordinary Leonardo da Vinci, uh, a painter, artist, designer, engineer of sorts, whose legacy is still uh, being grappled with, and we are still trying to come to terms with this amazing genius. And the new book that uh, we're going to be talking about for the next few minutes explores not only the ways in which Leonardo da Vinci was uh, amazingly ahead of his time, but also some of the ways in which da Vinci was also a part of his time. That is, although he was certainly, probably in many respects, the most important luminary of his time in these various fields, he by no means was alone. He was coming to prominence in an era of amazing discovery and one uh, tremendous breakthrough after another. That's also important for us in understanding just exactly who he was and how he came to accomplish what he did. Uh, The book is written by Stefan Klein, who is uh, an important writer, uh, with a number of different uh, uh, things to his credit, including the bestseller The Science of Happiness, also The Secret Pulse of Time. He makes his home in Berlin, Germany, and from Germany he is speaking to us today uh, on the morning show about his book. We should probably mention that it was originally written in German and translated by Shelley Frisch. The book is a, a uh, publication of Da Koppel Press, generously uh, uh, annotated with... Uh, Uh, with notes and uh, many, many illustrations by the great Da Vinci himself. Stefan Klein, we welcome you to The Morning Show. Hello. So glad to have this chance to uh, talk with you. Could you explain to us uh, how you first became intrigued with Leonardo Da Vinci and first began studying him in earnest? Um, Well... I was intrigued by him very early on um, when a really badly done but still beautiful print um, of one of his graphics fell into my hand when I was still at high school. Um, So the print um, just showed how... how, uh, Oh... um, I can begin that under uh, 10 grand, right? Um, uh, so the print just shows water pouring into a tub, as it would in your bathtub or as it would when you're pouring um, a cup of tea. And um, Da Vinci makes clear that this seemingly so everyday process is full of extraordinary detail. So we, you would see a see bubbles popping up, currents um, of all kinds. Actually, the graphic looks as if uh, Leonardo had had X-ray eyes. And this this really amazed me, as I said, very early on with uh, 17 years um, or so, because I thought, hey, look, um, you just have to look carefully enough and the most everyday things are full of wonder for the one who looks. Now, Da Vinci puzzled and fascinated me kind in the back of my head for, well, almost 30, um, almost 30 years since. Um, 
but it really took a long time until I dared um, to write a book about him because um, I was kind of timid, you see, um, timid um, if I would really have the courage to near myself to such a great mind. Um, and then eventually, um, a couple of years ago, I was invited um, to give a lecture in Milan, and I went into the National Museum, which is called um, uh, Leonardo da Vinci. And there I saw all those models of the machines um, he made. And I was so fascinated, and um, I just couldn't resist the temptation. <laughs> well, I'm glad that you... Uh... Uh, gave into the temptation. You've you've created a, a marvelous book. One of the things I especially love is the way the book begins. The introduction is titled "The Mystery of the Ten Thousand Pages," and uh, you take us to the year fifteen twenty, and uh, a really interesting story, which uh, begins actually uh, maybe a year or so after Leonardo da Vinci had died. Uh, tell our listeners at least a little bit of this uh, really quite dramatic and moving story with which your book begins. Well, uh, the story is that um, Leonardo literally wrote and um, drawed down everything that went through his head, and that was really a lot. So... Um, over the more than 60 years um, he lived, he amassed more than uh, probably 10,000 um, manuscript sheets. A horrible mess. And he always wanted to publish at least parts of it. For example, his extraordinary anatomical drawings, but he never made it. Um, probably not because he was so busy with a million other things. So, um, uh, when he died at the um, um, court of the King of France, whose guest and friend he was, he gave all his heritage to um, his um, beloved um, pupil and um, private secretary, um, Melzi. He, he was a young man at that time. And um, he took that 10,000 pages home to his native Italy. That's, uh, with that journey, my book begins. And um, for his lifetime, Melzi hoarded um, this treasure in his, um, in his private villa. But eventually Melzi died, and um, his son didn't know what to make out of it. And um, this is where the tragedy begins, um, because the son gave Leonardo's drawings away to anybody who wanted to have them. And this is how um, literally the important works of Leonardo were torn apart like confetti and at the end reigned over various libraries and collections all over Europe, now some are even in the U.S. in the meantime. Um, and by this very fact um, that this work was torn apart and more probably the half of it was lost, 
Um, this is one reason why Leonardo da Vinci is so enigmatic um, today, because it's only in the last years that um, scholars have um, started to reconstruct these manuscripts as they were, and um, they really continue to learn a lot from them, and uh, lots is still not properly understood. Hmm. One of the things you say in this introduction is that even the plunderers did not diminish Leonardo's posthumous fame. If anything, the gaps in Leonardo's story created openings for myths. In other words, the, the fact that so much of what he left behind is unfortunately lost to us, or up until now at least seems to be, uh, in some ways makes him a still more intriguing figure for us. Of course, because um, this gives room for all kinds of imagination. Um, just um, think of the smash hit book of Dan Brown, um, who, write, who really capitalized um, on, um, on how Leonardo um, is suitable as a screen for all kinds of projections um, we have. By the way, um, this is not an entirely new phenomenon. Already at his lifetime and shortly after, um, Leonardo was a kind of, um, well, a mysterious figure and a pop star at the same time. When he... Um, displayed some of his early um, sketches for some of his drawings, the people would crowd together um, to see them. So um, uh, that an artist would become a star was a really new phenomenon at that time. So we are not the first ones um, to kind of idealize Leonardo da Vinci. Mm. Tell us a little bit more about the the problem with having this collection scattered as it is. I mean, the fact that it was sold off to all kinds of different people. I mean, we've already touched on the, the most important loss, which is that so much of it ultimately just sort of disappeared from the face of the earth or, or seems to have disappeared and perhaps been lost forever. But just the fact that, that the collection was dismantled has made it, uh, of course, a, a great challenge then for scholars like yourself to try to understand sort of each and every piece of what he drew and sketched and so on. Just explain what we would know if all of this material had never been split apart, if it had been kept together. What kind of a difference would that make for somebody like yourself or somebody like us trying to understand Da Vinci? Well, it would be probably be much less interesting, but um, still interesting enough. Um, I um, give you an example, not from my own research, but um, uh, from the research of um, an engineer um, to, who happens to work near, uh, quite near your place, namely in Minneapolis. Um, now, he, find, he, together with a very accomplished Leonardo scholar, found out um, that several sheets who were torn apart, um, uh, one half of them um, being in Milan, the other um, half of them being in the collection of the um, Queen of England in Windsor Castle um, uh, today, um, could, not under, 
could not be understood at all because they simply made no sense until they found out how to put them together by all kinds of um, of really ingenious work and um, comparing the quality of the paper, comparing the ink, etc., etc. Um, and so they found out that um, those um, pieces that could not be understood at all by themselves, the one shows um, a kind of human figure, the other one shows um, very mysteriously, seemingly, um, buckets of water. But when you put it together, you can understand that the whole thing is a project for a clockwork, and a clockwork that works in an unheard of, in an unheard uh, uh, way, namely it's a project for a digital clockwork driven by water. Um, but you would see what Leonardo wanted to do only if you put the puzzle together. It is, it is really like a work of puzzle, you see? One piece alone doesn't make much sense. But once you put it together, um, you see the meaning. So in other words, sometimes we will have maybe pages that should be seen side by side next to each other or that are talking about the same thing, but they are they might be located now in different hemispheres. Exactly. Uh, so another thing that is, of course, a great mystery about uh, much of what da Vinci left behind is that he engaged for some reason in a strange kind of mirror writing. Uh, I'm sure many of our listeners have at least heard a little bit about this, as have I, but uh, before reading your book, I never really understood anything about that. Explain why Leonardo da Vinci engaged in this sort of special kind of writing. Was there a particular purpose to it? Uh, no, um, I think it's much less mysterious than um, one might think it is. Um, we know that he was a left-hander. Um, we know that he was a, a non-conformist, so it, it didn't matter, conventions um, didn't matter much to him. And it was simply um, faster for him to write um, that way. And from his manuscript, we know that he wrote and um, most of all thought uh, very fast. So um, his mirror writing um, has nothing to do with um, uh, with secrecy, um, uh, that kind of thing. It has um, many times been speculated that his mirror writing has to do with secrecy, but this is simply not true because, um, it, of course, it was very obvious um, uh, to Leonardo how easily one could decipher um, a, a, a writing that goes from uh, left to right. Namely, you put, just put it in front of him. How to decipher a writing that goes from right to left? Namely, you just put it in front of a mirror. Um, so Leonardo coded, indeed, um, rarely some things, but he did it in a completely different way. He would um, use a code of mixing up letters. For those of you just joining us, we're talking with Stefan Klein, and we're talking about his book, Leonardo's Legacy, How Da Vinci Reimagined the World. Uh, as you said about studying Da Vinci and his legacy, one of the things that you had to do is try to see as much of this material for yourself. 
as you possibly could. Could you just explain to our listeners where this effort ultimately took you? To what places around the world did you travel in order to see the legacy of da Vinci with your own eyes? Well, the farthest place is from uh, the, uh, the farthest place um, to which I traveled um, from my home place in Berlin was indeed Minneapolis, because um, I couldn't resist the temptation to meet uh, Mark Rosheim's um, reconstruction of that. Um, digital clockwork um, uh, driven by water. Um, else, um, the nearest place was the um, State Library of Berlin, which has a fabulous collection of, um, of facsimiles, um, a, a complete collection of facsimiles of, of all Leonardo manuscript pages. Um, and in between, I traveled to Italy many times, of course, because um, I am uh, convinced, as you said in your introduction, that Leonardo has to be understood um, from his context, that is, um, from the time he lived in and from the places where he lived. So, um, actually, I visited all the places um, where Leonardo had lived and worked um, and died, of course. I went to France. Um, and a truly um, remarkable, outstanding experience um, for me um, was um, that I was allowed to visit the um, private collection of the um, graphics of the Queen of England, as I said, in, in Windsor Castle near London. And um, there I had um, a day all on my own with, um, uh, with Leonardo's uh, uh, drawing. This was, uh, this was truly fantastic because it it gives you a kind of um, romantic um, illusion um, to be alone with the master and um, uh, that for some hours you can speak to the master. I wouldn't have thought that I would be sus susceptible to that kind of thought, but, but I am. Um, and when you can study um, some drawings in that detail, as you can there, um, you find that they are even more remarkable than anything you would see in the facsimiles or when you see them at an exhibition. This was really a fantastic experience. You mentioned this uh, encounter in uh, the first chapter of the book, which is called The Gaze, G-A-Z-E, The Gaze. And it is in this chapter that you speak at length about his wonderful masterpiece, The Mona Lisa. And I'm so intrigued that uh, you find new things to say, new insights to share about a painting, which, of course, has been the subject of all kinds of discussion and speculation and analysis over the centuries. And yet there is still more for us to learn about this intriguing uh, painting. Uh, for instance, you tell us something about how Leonardo da Vinci was tremendously intrigued and by and studied uh, the human face and facial expressions. Tell us more about how he explored this uh, aspect of, of human beings. Yeah, um, 
you see, um, I think that with Leonardo, you really cannot separate his art from his science. Um, it, it was one of it, it was one and the same for him. And um, I think that the fact that Leonardo was indeed, indeed a pioneer of modern science also made him such an extraordinary artist. And um, I think um, the Mona Lisa is an, excellent, is an excellent example for this. Um, Leonardo, for example, um, tried to find out how we produce facial expressions. Um, he went so far as to speculate um, about the acting of nerves. And, of course, um, he did um, many anatomical studies of the um, muscles in the face, which would um, produce these um, expressions. Um, he would do this with um, dissecting um, dead corpses, of course. And um, he indeed used all that knowledge um, he gained from his scientific research in his artistic work, as in the Mona Lisa. And um, the fact that the, that the expression of the Mona Lisa is so mysterious for us um, comes from Leonardo making her very deliberately ambiguous. And I, I, I think one can show that very well. Mm. You share a term that I had not ever seen uh, before I read your book, uh, a, a, an effect known as sfumato. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah. Um, uh, sfumato is um, a voluntary blurring of... Um, of light and shadows, because um, Leonardo had found out that our perception, um, in fact, does not work like um, a photographic camera, for example. So what Leonardo does, um, he mimics the working of our perception in his paintings. So he, he would not paint what he sees, but rather he would paint what he knows about the workings of our perception. And, and, and in the Mona Lisa, for example, he uses this very deliberately um, to put his blurring in the parts of the face which we mostly use to read a facial expression. Um, from neuropsychological research today, we know um, that people would look mostly at the eyes and at the cheek um, of people, at the regions around the uh, ends of the mouth, to find out how he or she thinks and feels. And uh, this is precisely where Leonardo puts in the Mona Lisa um, his most ambiguous shades. Um, so it's not by chance at all that when looking at the Mona Lisa, we are puzzled. <laughs> I, I want to read just a, a, a moment from this chapter. 
This is what you write. Still more remarkable is how the light pours over Mona Lisa's body and plays with her fingers, each of which is finely shaded like a miniature sculpture. The hands project far forward to counterbalance the landscape in the distance, which augments the painting's sense of depth. The folds of the sleeves sparkle like sunbeams on the waves of the sea. Most importantly, the illumination makes Mona Lisa appear both animated and mysterious. The distribution of light and shadow foils any attempt to construe her frame of mind. Obviously, Leonardo calculated the brightness of each and every square inch of his painting to achieve a particular effect. Nevertheless, no detail seems contrived or calculated. The light that falls on the young woman appears quite natural. I am so glad that you go into that kind of detail for us because when we look at a painting like this and it appears entirely natural, we also would mistakenly assume that to achieve that would be a simple, natural matter. And, of course, you point out that it's quite the opposite, that it was only attention to painstaking detail that allowed da Vinci to paint such a natural-looking portrait that seems almost alive to us. Yeah, indeed. And um, uh, there is um, a drawing, a, a kind of pre-study for the Mona Lisa, which um, I was lucky to um, see in the libraries um, in Windsor, where you actually see how he did this. Um, he uses geometrical constructions um, to determine the intensity of light um, under different angles, we see a face that. Uh, under different angles, um, no. He uses geometrical constructions to determine the intensity of light depending on the angle um, under which it hits a face. Um, so, uh, you really can show um, uh, that he really constructed every detail of it. So um, Leonardo's paintings have very little to do with the art of painting at his time, and it has very—it it has even less to do, of course, um, with simple reproduction with photography. But if you think of it, you rather have to think of it. Um, as being constructed um, like the images in a computer um, in a computer animation um, are, we are using today, they would use some of the very same methods um, Leonardo used to make, for example, his Mona Lisa appear so natural. I also appreciate that in this chapter you draw a contrast between the Mona Lisa and this. Uh, painting from about the same time, Lady with a Unicorn, yeah. by Raphael, which would be an example of a painting which is beautiful in its own way, but far more sterile, in a sense. And uh, just by showing us a painting like that, of a comparable sort of subject matter, uh, but with an entirely different, lesser effect, it helps us appreci appreciate the Mona Lisa all the more. Um, Greg, may I interrupt you? At the moment, yes. there is a child crying do you do you hear that i do not hear it at all actually um, yeah but uh, but i do and it's kind of um, it, it's my daughter hang on, okay. uh, you hang bet. on a moment yep you bet it, it, 
kinds of Dora. Ja. Dora, was ist denn los? Ja, die, ich, ich mache hier gerade ein Radiointerview. Das ist ein bisschen schwierig. Mit, äh, kann sie woanders bitte? Okay, she, she hurt her finger. Okay. Oh, is she okay? Yeah, yeah, I guess so. Okay. Um, okay, uh, so we were at the, uh, the lady with the unicorn, right? Yes, that's right. Go ahead. Uh, um, can you ask your question again? Um, we were just talking about how the uh, the one painting is okay. is is beautiful in its own way, yeah. but not nearly so lifelike. And it helps exactly. by talking about the one we greater appreciate, the Mona Lisa. Yeah. Um, despite that, um, Raphael's Lady with a Unicorn is a much more beautiful woman. I'm sorry to have to say, um, being a male, um, it is a Perfect painting. It's at the state of the art of the time. Uh, Raphael Santi was a, a, a was a true master, but it is. But despite all of its beauty, uh, Raphael's painting is cold. Now um, we know that Raphael was um, inspired by the Mona Lisa. He um, saw the earliest sketches for the Mona Lisa, and um, he copied many inventions um, that Leonardo made for the Mona Lisa, namely um, the posing of the young lady um, at the veranda, um, and the landscape in the background, even up to the posing of the hands. But still everybody would know the Mona Lisa and nobody would know about, or only experts would know about the lady with the unicorn. Uh, you don't know even where it is. It's in the Villa Borghese in Rome. Um, and I think that that is due to the very fact that um, uh, Raphael painted what he saw and Leonardo painted what he knew. I think that makes all the difference. Later in the book, you tell us about something else which fascinated Leonardo da Vinci quite a lot. And uh, it is namely the, the other aspects of the human body besides just the face and how facial expressions are, are created. This also happens to be an interest of his which gets him in some trouble. Uh, could you explain um, what the attitude was in that day about the dissection of corpses and the study of the human body, and what kind of trouble Leonardo da Vinci found himself in? Well, the attitude at the time was kind of um, hypocrite, if you wish. So, um, officially, um, dissecting corpses were, uh, was um, strictly forbidden by the church. It was banned, but as always, there were exceptions. Um, so medical students had limited access to um, corpses, and um, so did the artists. It was quite usual at that time um, that um, artists of great standing, as Leonardo was, of course, and many others were, um, made a kind of deal with the church. Um, the deal with, uh, would be you produce for us um, brilliantly and naturalistically looking human corpses and um, we won't ask uh, how you gain that knowledge. 
And gaining that knowledge, of course, meant um, dissecting um, in the hospital, which many artists did. Now, the difference between Leonardo and his colleagues was um, that um, other painters would dissect only superficially. That is, um, to learn more about the muscular tissue and how it would model the human corpse. Leonardo, but Leonardo would go much more into depth. For poor curiosity, um, he um, went to dissect inner organs, even, even the heart, and um, he showed um, fetuses. And that got him into trouble um, because um, he even went beyond that. He speculated about the soul of the um, of the of the unborn child and the mother, etc. And the church couldn't want this. So um, he was betrayed by uh, an employee of his, and we know from a note in his diaries. Um, didn't have serious consequences um, because he stood on good terms with the powerful, but he was uh, banned from further access to the hospital, and um, that was painful for him. Mm. One of the things you write about Leonardo in this particular chapter, which you title Under the Skin, is Leonardo was a consummate explainer, and he was convinced that pictures can offer a better overview than language. And indeed, when we look at the uh, images that he created of things like the human shoulder or the human heart, it's really extraordinary how beautiful these are, and I'm sure at the time tremendously helpful for people wanting to understand the human body and its inner workings. Well, they could have been helpful if Leonardo only had cared to publish them what he always wanted to do. Um, had, had he done this, um, we would appreciate him today as um, the founder of modern anatomy. Um, but he didn't. Um, uh, so um, his nearly complete atlas of the human anatomy was forgotten as so, as so much of his work. Um, but you are right to say um, that um, his graphics, of course, are fantastic, and they are entirely modern. In fact, um, Leonardo, all of his own, invented all the ways we still use to explain things graphically, all the views, all the dissections. He even went, to, he even went so far um, as to show sections through, through, through human um, corpses, which are um, physically entirely impossible, um, that he ever could have made that section. Um, but, um, no, I just skipped that sentence. <laughs> It gets complicated, doesn't it? Uh, there are two other facets. Yeah, and, I, and, 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 and I have to finish um, soon. Okay. Um, two other quick things to talk about sure. briefly. Um, I think many people who read your book will be surprised to see a chapter titled Robots. 
But indeed, Leonardo da Vinci came up with some of his most intriguing ideas uh, uh, in, 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 uh, in some of the uh, amazing devices which he designed and in some cases produced. Explain how Leonardo da Vinci made his living, at least for some of his life, by, in your words, conjuring up dreams and illusions. Tell us some of these which he created and what we know about them. Well, he was... Um, okay. Um, Leonardo learned quite early on, that is, um, by the age of 30, that he couldn't make a living by painting uh, because he was too slow a painter. Um, so um, he eventually got, uh, got a job at um, the Duke of um, Milan as a kind of chief engineer. And um, in that role, um, the first big thing he made himself a name with was um, to organize a um, mechanical spectacle. Um, would you use that word, a, a spectacle? A spectacle? Um, how would you pronounce it? Uh, spectacle. Spectacle. Uh, okay. uh, a, a mechanical spectacle at the occasion of the wedding of the Duke's sister. And um, you have, we don't have any physical remains of that, um, just descriptions, um, but it must have been fantastic. Um, you have to imagine it as a kind of um, mixture between a planetarium and a theater. You would have the planets revolving and... Um, uh, and um, and, actor and actors declaiming verses standing on the planets. Um, uh, there are even speculations that um, some of his flying machines have their origin as um, pieces for the theater. Um, now, he later um, thought of um, all kinds of... Um, well, all kinds of robots, of, 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 of mechanical toys, if you so wish. Um, for example, a lion which could open his chest, which could seemingly tear apart his chest and um, with his arm um, grab into his chest and tear out a, a bunch of flowers. Um, just for the enjoyment of the people invited at those parties. So um, Leonardo seemingly, seemingly had great talent as an entertainer, and um, as it is today, technology at that time uh, had an important function in entertaining the people. Hmm. One of the things you tell us about Leonardo da Vinci is that some of his uh, ideas were things that perhaps were never more than ideas that ultimately they never came to full fruition. I mean, things that he designed but ultimately never constructed or never worked out to the extent that they could have finally taken shape and, and, and in fact been real. But you tell us we have to be careful in the way that we judge inventors and, uh, and that we shouldn't just judge them by how many of their ideas come to fruition. Uh, tell us how this 
applies to Leonardo da Vinci. How do we judge him as an inventor, keeping this warning of yours in mind? Well, um, usually um, he's judged um, especially by the historians of art as a brilliant painter, um, of course, um, but as a dilettante, as an engineer, and as a dilettante, and a, as a scientist. And I think this is entirely unfair um, for two reasons. Um, first of all, um, we know that Leonardo um, invented many things that did work, and the Duke of Milan didn't pay him for nothing as an engineer. But what is more important than that? I think um, that Leonardo coined modern, I think that Leonardo coined many concepts um, of um, technology of later times. He um, had a whole new approach on how to think of a machine, how to make a machine. Um, you see, at that time, um, well, technology was done by, was done as it ever was done. Uh, that is by, um, by the use of tradition. And Leonardo had an entirely new approach. He would try to construct devices systematically from scratch on. And I think in that he made a contribution, I think in, I think in devising such approaches, um, he made a very important contribution. And um, even if he had realized none of his, of his inventions, um, he still would remain one of the greatest technologists of all times. Hmm. Our last question, what are the remaining, the most important remaining mysteries or, or questions surrounding Leonardo da Vinci? I mean, questions that remain to be answered or mysteries uh, yet to be fully revealed. Yeah, that is a good question. Um, I guess there is much to be revealed how Leonardo thought about astronomy. There is a whole codex, um, the so-called Codex Arundel, um, which is hardly understood. Um, this is the question that would interest me most going into. Um, there are many questions, of course, um, on the more historical, on the more factual side. Um, that is, um, which machines, for example, um, did he really build and did he not build? Um, we know astonishingly little about um, what, was, what really was the state of the art at that time. How much ahead was he really? And then, of course, um, what, which would make a true sensation and which I don't think is impossible at all, would be the finding of a whole new codex, uh, a whole new manuscript hidden somewhere. And uh, 
I hope, uh, I think one can hope we will see that uh, one day or another. So somewhere in a closet or an attic or a basement, there perhaps are more of these uh, lost manuscripts of the great Leonardo da Vinci waiting to be found and studied and shared with the world. Yeah, I think this is entirely possible. Hmm. In the meantime, we have so much to learn from your wonderful book, which again is called Leonardo's Legacy, How Da Vinci Reimagined the World. The book is published by Da Capo Press. It includes a, a generous helping of um, all kinds of, of illustrations uh, from the notebooks of uh, the great Leonardo da Vinci. Stefan Klein, I thank you so much for joining me today and for talking with me about your fascinating book. Thank you. What a pleasure.